Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Coming up a little bit later, IPR's Grant Gerlach uh, with a look at activity at the Iowa State House this week. Uh, also, we'll look at a new bill that would prevent Iowans from challenging Donald Trump's place on the 2024 general election ballot. Uh, on 14th Amendment grounds. Remember, that's been in our news. Stephen Gruber-Miller of the Des Moines Register will talk to us about that. But first, a new report ranks Iowa last, last in the nation uh, for the number of state psychiatric beds per 100,000 residents. Let's talk more about this problem and uh, how a new plan may help with that. Let's check in with Michaela Ram, health care reporter with the Des Moines Register. Hi, Michaela. Hey, Ben. Start off, please, by telling us more about this report uh, that ranks Iowa last. Of course. Um, So this is a new report from the Treatment Advocacy Center, which takes a look at at the number of psychiatric beds available nationwide. Um, About every six years, they come out with this report. And so the report uh, for this year, which came out earlier this week, reports that Iowa has 64 state-managed inpatient psychiatric beds, which are available for treatment of individuals with serious mental health conditions like uh, severe depression, schizophrenia, things like that. Um, So if you do the math, that's only about two beds per 100,000 Iowans. So like you said, puts Iowa at the bottom of the list of all 50 states in the District of Columbia. Give us a sense of the demand for these services, Michaela. The, The number of Iowans dealing with these types of severe mental illnesses? Yeah, of course. Uh, There's a huge demand. Um, I think it's pretty common to hear stories of individuals and families really struggling to get this kind of treatment for their families. Um, You know, the report estimates that there's about 84,000 Iowans living with a severe mental illness, um, but only about 35,000 receive treatment in a given year, Um, which, again, I think kind of goes back to the number of state-managed beds that are available in Iowa. Um, The report says that 50 beds per 100,000 people in Iowa is sort of the minimum requirement to be able to access minimum treatment, and obviously Iowa is far below that. Yeah. One has to ask, uh, what has caused Iowa to come in last in this metric of psychiatric beds? Yeah, I think it traces back to, um, you know, trends over the years. Um, You know, Iowa has closed the number of uh, state-managed mental health institutions. Iowa only has two now, um, and those are located in Independence and uh, Cherokee. But, you know, there's also a number of factors. You know, providing this kind of treatment is expensive. And we're also seeing just an increasing prevalence of people with these kind of needs, Um, we know the pandemic really played a, a heavy toll on people with mental health conditions. You know, they're they're really exacerbated. Their demands are greater. Um, and, you know, it's sort of kind of a, a perfect storm of the demand increasing and the services not being available. Mm-hmm. This report that, again, ranks Iowa last in the U.S. for the number of state psychiatric beds per 100,000 residents comes as Governor Reynolds has made 
improving access to mental health care in our state, one of her top priorities for this current legislative session. Uh, I'll have you expand on on what uh, we understand to be those plans. But first, let's listen, Michaela, to some of the governor's remarks uh, on this earlier this month during her condition of the state address. There's still more work to, to be done. In Iowa, there's little to no coordination between the 13 mental health and 19 substance use region, regions. And that's a problem because over 25% of adults with serious mental health challenges also suffer from substance use. Our state is filled with capable professionals who care about getting Iowans the support they need, but their talent and dedication are shortchanged by a fractured system that makes coordination almost impossible. To better serve Iowans, I am proposing we combine the 32 different substance use and mental health regions together into seven new unified behavioral health districts. I'm also proposing to increase support for behavioral health services with a portion of Iowa's opioid settlement. Michaela, unpack that a little bit and and talk about, uh, explain how these, I guess, consolidations uh, may help. Definitely. So, you know, I think Governor Reynolds really articulated it in her speech. You know, one of the big problems that these regions run into is that it's hard to coordinate services. Um, You know, as she's pointed out, there's a prevalence of individuals who have substance use disorders and are seeking treatment for this disorders, but also grapple with other mental health conditions. And so getting treatment for both of those, you have to navigate two different systems and and that just creates challenges. Um, So this alignment that she's proposing is really a continuation of her uh, effort last year to consolidate government, to consolidate agencies and and really kind of streamline services and and access points to state government. And so this is another piece of that puzzle that's going to be led by the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services um, to merge those services and make it more streamlined for those folks that are are navigating the system in Iowa and and struggle with both of these conditions. Mm. Would this also presumably improve services for children with mental health conditions? That was also a focus of the governor's condition of the state address. It was, and the state is highlighting that very strongly as part of this effort. Um, You know, Iowa also recently reached a settlement regarding access to children's mental health services, and and part of that requirement is Iowa to improve access really to address some of these gaps. And so as those plans roll out and as we start to get more details on what that actually looks like, I think we can definitely expect uh, children's services to really be a highlight. and I think that that is um, especially true given that Governor Reynolds highlighted a, a particular um, youth uh, service that that's opening up in Story County here shortly. Um, it's a residential treatment facility. I, I believe they're opening 70 beds, but um, she highlighted that as part of her speech as, you know, an example of the kind of services that they want to try to make more available for Iowans. Michaela, as part of your coverage here, uh, you reached out to mental health care advocates. What are they saying about this plan? They are really feeling optimistic. Um, I spoke with the executive director of NAMI Iowa, Ryan Kane, and he said that this kind of plan could really be a game changer. Um, You know, he said that 
some of the things proposed as part of this plan has really been on advocates' wish list for a while. And so it seems so far advocates are, are really optimistic about this plan. Mm-hmm. We have a couple more minutes, Michaela. Um, in other healthcare reporting you did this week, Iowa lawmakers considering changes to a state program that offers funding to anti-abortion centers across Iowa. Remind us first about the goal of these centers and why the this program was initiated by, we should say, the Republican-controlled legislature. Yeah, so this was, as you said, a, a Reynolds-backed proposal that, that was passed by the uh, Republican-controlled legislator. Um, so la- a couple legislative sessions ago, they created a program called the More Options for Maternal Support, or MOMS program. Um, and really it was created to allow the state to funnel taxpayer dollars to these anti-abortion uh, centers. They're called pregnancy resource centers, also called crisis pregnancy centers. But really their whole goal is to discourage individuals from seeking abortion and consider adoption or consider ke- keeping their pregnancies. Um, and they, they do that by offering donated items or offering counseling or or things like that to essentially help. But, um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of these centers uh, pretend to be medical facilities. They pretend to be medical clinics, even though they are not licensed medical facilities. Mm -hmm. And why are the changes needed, perhaps? Uh, Why has this been introduced? Yeah, so the change proposed that was advanced by House Subcommittee earlier this week was to remove the requirement for the state to hire a third-party administrator to oversee and manage this network of pregnancy resource centers that's going to receive state funding. So over the past year, the state has had quite a challenge in finding and hiring a third-party administrator. Um, Their first search they did earlier last year yielded only one bid, um, and uh, apparently the bid was not sufficient. They didn't meet specific requirements set out by the state. So they reissued a request for proposal and they got no bids. So in the meantime, the uh, Health and Human Services Department has been serving that third party administrator. So this uh, bill, you know, if it passed as is, would essentially remove that requirement for the state to hire a third party administrator and would allow the State Department just to continue serving in that role. And what do you expect the, the future of this bill will be? Will it uh, sail through the legislature? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, it sailed very quickly through the subcommittee. Um, I know the MOMS program is a big priority for Republicans at the State House. It's a big priority for Governor Reynolds. So wouldn't be surprising if it passes quickly. But I know that this type of program is not very popular in Iowa. Um, it's garnered quite a bit of controversy. So we'll see if that derails things at all, but I, I don't expect it to have any trouble passing the state house. Mm-hmm. In the final minute of our conversation, Michaela, do tell us more about the voices speaking in opposition to these centers and the grounds for their opposition. Absolutely. So we're hearing a lot from organizations who really denounce these centers for, you know, first of all, posing as legitimate medical facilities when you know, they're not credentialed by any licensing body. They're not certified to offer any sort of medical advice or things like that. Um, you know, and, and really the biggest criticism that it receives, and it's really damning, but the these centers often, according to the American College of, of Gynecology, they really use misleading tactics. And they often, um, you know, give misinformation to women who arrive at their centers to 
you know, as a tactic to discourage them from abortion, right? So, and, you know, there there is other individuals who spoke firsthand at the subcommittee this week about their firsthand experience at one of these centers. And they really echoed a lot of that criticism saying that they, you know, they, they felt lied to, they felt that they were, you know, kept there against their will and really had negative experiences visiting these facilities. Michaela Ram, thank you so much for the tremendous reporting. Uh, Michaela of the Des Moines Register, their health care reporter. Until next time, Michaela, take care. Thanks, Ben. We'll be back with more of our News Buzz edition after a short break. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Still to come, Stephen Gruber-Miller on a bill that would bar a 14th Amendment ballot challenge for Trump. Uh, We'll also learn about IPR's new season of the podcast, Unsettled. Also, why those clever messages on electronic highway signs may be going away. I'll talk with Lynn Taw of Axios about that. Let's start by catching up on some of the activity this week at the Iowa State House, uh, the 2024 session, marking the eighth year in a row that Republicans control both chambers in the Iowa legislature. Grant Gerlach joins me now of IPR. Hi, Grant. Hi, Ben. Under a bill that advanced this week in the Iowa Senate, I understand medical providers could refuse to perform any health service that violates the provider's ethical, moral, or religious beliefs. What's the current law in this area, and how would this measure possibly change that? Well, so currently, doctors uh, cannot be required to provide abortions, but this would go much farther than that, beyond abortions and beyond just doctors. It says that medical providers don't have to provide any health service that violates their their moral or religious or ethical beliefs. Uh, and that includes doctors, pharmacists, it includes hospitals and insurance companies. Uh, none of those would have to participate in or make referrals or pay for health care services that they object to. So it broadens out what the existing rules are. This is something that uh, there were a number of Christian groups that supported this. Apparently, it's been promoted in other states by the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a a conservative Christian legal group, and now it's a proposal here in Iowa. Yeah. Um, Who are the voices opposed to this, and what do they point to as problematic scenarios that might arise? There were uh, people speaking from, like, the the public health uh, side of things who are saying this is going to make it harder to control potentially infectious disease if there are doctors who are refusing to to handle those situations. And also, particularly in rural areas, you know, if you're in an urban place where you can find a different provider, maybe you can work around this kind of objection. But in a rural area, if there's one doctor who does one kind of service and they object to to providing it, um, then it could be harder for someone to actually find the health care that they're looking for. 
Mm-hmm. And this is a bill that has uh, advanced, you say? Yes. This is in the Senate Judiciary Committee. It passed out of subcommittee this week and moves on to the full committee. Okay. Another bill um, got some sing-along attention at a subcommittee hearing this week, one that would require students and teachers at public schools to sing uh, the national anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner. That's right. So uh, what this bill says is that every day students would have to, and their teachers would have to sing the national anthem, at least one verse. And on some occasions, like patriotic holidays, they would also have to sing uh, the other three more obscure verses of the Star Spangled Banner. Um, And in addition to that, it it lays out that schools would have to um, provide classes or lessons about the history of, of the anthem, what the words mean, where it all comes from. And in addition to that, the contributions of the founding fathers and members of the military across the, the history of our country. And supporters of this bill said they would like to see more patriotism in schools, more patriotism among students, and they feel like singing the national anthem every day would be one way to instill that. Mm. Is there an opt-out for students and teachers in this bill? Should it be passed into law? Yeah, so there is an opt-out. There is sort of a caveat to the opt-out. Students and teachers don't have to sing it if they if they choose not to, but they would still have to stand at attention. Of course, we've seen this in uh, famously with uh, the NFL, where players chose to kneel for the national anthem and it became a, a nationwide controversy. And so people against this said, you're just introducing that kind of controversy to school and putting teachers in charge of refereeing who's standing for the anthem, who's not, who's singing, who's not. And they said that's, number one, just a distraction from what they're trying to accomplish in the classroom. In addition to taking a time away from lessons, if you're singing all four verses on a regular basis. And uh, on top of that, uh, opponents of the bill say patriotism isn't something you can force just by making someone sing the national anthem. Another little footnote here. I think it's well known that even superstars have trouble singing the national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner. Difficult. Should we try it, Ben? <laughs> uh, no. Uh, unless, no. Uh, you, you go ahead, though, Grant. <laughs> <laughs> It calls for an enormous vocal range, which neither you nor I have, and I think some superstars have had trouble with in the past. But let's move along. Uh, another bill moving forward in the Iowa Senate would give uh, K-12 schools uh, the option to hire a paid or volunteer chaplain. What is this about? So this idea comes from Texas. There was a bill that passed last year that allows uh, public schools to hire a chaplain. They wouldn't it wouldn't have to be a paid position. It could be a volunteer position, but basically they would be appointing someone in this position. It's not just someone who's coming in as a volunteer. They're given this title as as a school chaplain. Um, there are not any definitions in the bill for who qualifies as a chaplain and who doesn't. You don't have to have a chaplain certification or a license or from a particular denomination or anything like that. Um, And it also goes on to say that schools would not be able to require a chaplain to have like an educator's license um, through the Board of Educational Examiners. 
So that was one objection from people who oppose the bill that they feel like if chaplains are going to go into schools, they should come with credentials uh, and have some kind of professional code of ethics that they have to follow, some oversight that can be provided. Um, because one of the sponsors of a version of this bill in the House speaking about this bill said it's a matter of allowing ministers in the workplace. And so there was reaction to that from opponents who raised the question, are these ministers or are they chaplains? Because a professional chaplain approaches things very differently from from someone who's a, a church minister. A couple of other bills to quickly uh, cover here, Grant, uh, uh, another one in the Iowa Senate. Schools uh, would be required to align their reading instruction with strategies supported by what is known as the science of reading. What's that? Well, this is something, the science of reading is getting uh, some push in the legislature this year to improve the state's reading scores, especially in the early elementary grades. And it's a matter of um, aligning the standards for teaching reading with what what we call the science of reading, which is um, basically a body of research that tells how people learn to read. It includes things like phonics and fluency and vocabulary. And so there's this push in the Iowa Senate to put those different core components of the science of reading into the the code, into the standards for teaching reading for teachers, and also for the requirements of, of people being trained to be teachers at Iowa's colleges and universities. Um, it would also ban another approach that's called three-queuing, which I wasn't familiar with, but it has to do with using context clues and pictures to... Um, to instruct students to guess what a word is. And this has definitely fallen out of favor. Several other states have banned it, uh, including uh, Indiana, I think, recently. So um, Iowa now potentially could be going that direction, banning three-queuing and promoting the science of reading. Moving out of the classroom, but still having to do with our youth, another Iowa Senate bill introduced would change the rules surrounding driver's licenses for minors, even earlier driving. Yeah, and this primarily affects students who are 14 and a half to 16 years old in the range that currently can get a school permit that allows them to drive to and from school by themselves. Or for farm kids, it allows them to work on the farm and and travel to and from working on the farm. This would expand it so it doesn't matter if you're working on the farm, you can drive to work. And it follows up on uh, loosening of child labor laws last year where the legislature for this same age range said that kids can work longer hours and can work later into the night. Uh, So this would give those same kids the ability to not have to catch a ride to work or have their parents drop them off. They could drive themselves. All right. Uh, still very early in this legislative session, perhaps a reminder, uh, Grant, that, you know, at this stage, we have a lot of bills introduced. Uh, some of them fly, some of them do not. Um, so we have to watch them in the coming weeks, but also a, a good chance if one of our, if our listeners heard something, they want to weigh in with their uh, representatives uh, at the state house. a good time to do that, right? Yeah, what we've been discussing, they've been going through subcommittee and on to the committee level. Then they go to the chambers for for all the votes and things. So it's still at a point where if people want to give feedback to their legislators, they could impact whether these bills move ahead or not. Okay, thank you very much. IPR's Grant Gerlach, keeping track of uh, several stories, several bills at the Iowa State House. We look forward to uh, your reporting from the State House. Grant Gerlach, thanks. Thanks, Ben. 
It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, staying with state politics, let's first think back to some national news that dominated headlines a short time ago. Former President Donald Trump has faced challenges to his candidacy in several states, namely in Colorado and Maine. Uh, These states have said he should be removed from their primary ballots under a section of the U.S. Constitution's 14th Amendment uh, that uh, bars officials from holding office again if they have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against these United States. Well, now the Secretary of State's office here in Iowa has filed a bill that would prevent Iowans from challenging Trump's place on this year's general election ballot on those grounds. Let's talk about it with Stephen Gruber-Miller. He is the Des Moines Register State House reporter. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Ben. Now, the former president won victories in Iowa, New Hampshire, more recently this month. He's the front runner for the Republican nomination. Uh, tell us more about this bill, an obvious reaction to what, for instance, Colorado and, and Maine have done. Yeah, that's right. So this bill would essentially prevent Iowans from challenging Trump uh, on 14th Amendment grounds uh, by amending the the current section of law that uh, lays out how you can object to a presidential candidate's uh, ballot uh, appearance, basically. So uh, currently you can file a written objection uh, to a candidate and, and you can object. There are several grounds, including their eligibility, you know, whether the, all the nominating papers they've fired or filed are legally sufficient, et cetera. This bill from the Secretary of State would essentially say you can only challenge a presidential candidate on whether their nominating papers submitted by their political party uh, meet all the criteria that they're required to meet. So you can't challenge them on other grounds, um, such as the constitutional grounds in the 14th Amendment. Okay, so so it doesn't cut off all grounds for challenges, but it does cut off the grounds that would be similar to the ones or the ones that were used in Colorado and Maine, 14th Amendment grounds. That's right. And and different states kind of handle this differently. So uh, some states you have to go to the courts, some states, you know, there's a process like we have here in Iowa. Um, You would still be able to challenge Trump if you filed a lawsuit, potentially, um, but but through the existing process that's laid out for challenging candidates, uh, that avenue would be closed off to you. You would have to simply only be able to challenge uh, relating to uh, the paperwork that's submitted. Um, so kind mm-hmm. of a higher bar if somebody were to file a lawsuit. It's more difficult than uh, than just filing an objection to this uh, panel. Yeah. How is the Iowa's Secretary of State's office portraying this change? They're really calling the bill a sort of a technical bill, just kind of cleaning up some parts of Iowa's code, clarifying when objections can be filed to candidates. Another aspect of the bill uh, removes uh, essentially all candidates who run for office in Iowa need to sign a document attesting that they they can't they know they can't run for office if they've been convicted of a felony. So this would remove that for federal candidates for Congress and the presidency. Um, and the, the Secretary of State's office essentially says. That's because the U.S. Constitution sets out requirements for members of Congress and the presidency, and the only requirements are the age, their residency, and their citizenship. So you can't add another requirement on to say, also, you can't be a felon the way you can for state candidates. Yeah, not coincidentally, uh, Donald Trump currently faces 91 felony charges in four criminal cases around the country. Uh, 
Stephen, um, the the U.S. Supreme Court is expected to step in and rule on this for all of the states. I wonder, do you know how this potential ruling, and I'm not sure we know when that would come, would uh, impact this proposed measure, if at all? Yeah, I think, I I don't know what the U.S. Supreme Court will do, but uh, it definitely has the potential to set, you know, a common standard for states around the country. So it could be that the Supreme Court rules and provides clarity on whether or not Trump uh, is or isn't eligible under the 14th Amendment. And so that would sort of, uh, you know, prevent challenges around the country under this topic. But we don't know what the court will do. They might decide not to rule on those grounds. uh, So we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. What is your sense of uh, this bill um, going through the legislature? Will it recount? I mean, Democrats uh, perhaps giving it some resistance, but they are not in the the majority. So it will go through uh, expecting that? I don't know yet. Uh, What's interesting about this bill is it's what's called a pre-filed bill from the Secretary of State. So their office, you know, submits a number of bills every year, uh, just changes to policy that they'd like to see. So this has yet to be assigned a bill number. It has yet to be assigned to a committee. So lawmakers really haven't begun the process of considering it in any way. Uh, So we'll see if Mm -hmm. they if they pick it up and actually give it a hearing or not. Mm -hmm. On another item that you've covered uh, this week, uh, Stephen, um, the Republican lawmakers in in our state house again proposing removing protections against discrimination for transgender people from the Iowa Civil Rights Act. Explain some context there. Yeah. So the Iowa Civil Rights Act prevents discrimination um, based on race, gender identity, sexual orientation, religion. Uh, disability, several other things, which means, you know, they can't, people can't suffer discrimination in housing and public accommodations and in other areas. And gender identity has been included among those protections since 2007 in Iowa. But for the past few years, we've seen Republicans in the state house file bills that would remove gender identity as a protected class from the Civil Rights Act. What's different this year is that this is the first time one of those bills will really get a hearing, and it's scheduled for next Wednesday. So the previously, the, the Judiciary Committee chair in the House, Reps, Representative Stephen Holt, has said that he did not want to consider a bill removing gender identity protections. Now he says he's open to having the conversation about it, uh, which could signal that there's more of a chance of it moving forward this year than uh, than previous versions have. Hearings open to the public with uh, public input, do you imagine? That's right. Yeah, just a normal subcommittee meeting. Uh, any member of the public can speak. You could leave a comment online ahead of time uh, or go to the Iowa Capitol uh, and speak at the hearing, which is scheduled for next Wednesday. Okay. Stephen Gruber-Miller covers the Iowa State House and politics for the Des Moines Register. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks, Ben. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. You've probably heard the new season of IPR's podcast, Unsettled, is out. It's a podcast series that focuses on the constantly shifting roles, 
identities and rights of women in our culture. I'm joined now by the host of Unsettled and, of course, the host of Talk of Iowa, Charity Nebby. Hi, Charity. Hey, Ben. Great to have you in this capacity uh, as an interviewee. Tell us more about uh, what you tackle in Unsettled. Well, in Unsettled, we have five episodes of this season, although we do have a few bonus episodes planned. And on each episode, we explore a different aspect of womanhood. And we do take some historical looks at uh, women through the years and women's rights through the years. But we also culminate in talking about being a woman right now in this moment in time. Yeah. What is special about this moment in time that you chose to focus this, you and the the team chose to focus this podcast on that? Well, the whole series was really prompted by the U.S. Supreme Court's Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade because suddenly women's bodies were a topic of debate in pretty much every legislature throughout the country, around many dinner tables. Women's rights are now different in many different states in the nation. And, you know, you remember there have been proposals, none of them passed yet, but proposals to actually restrict the movements of pregnant women across state lines. So those conversations, that was the impetus for this series. But there's just so much to talk about because, as we say, women's roles, women's identities, women's rights are constantly shifting in this country. And our better understanding of our country, of our culture, and of our history also deepens our understanding of, let's say, the women's movement through time, because a a better understanding of racial dynamics in, in this country certainly deepens that conversation as well. So this felt like the perfect moment to have this conversation. A really silly question, but I'll throw it out anyway, just to make sure people know this is a podcast about women and womanhood, but not just for women, right? Right. <laughs> I, you know, I think pretty much. <laughs> I said it was silly. I said it was silly. <laughs> pretty much everybody, everybody has a mother, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so we all have at least one important woman in our life. And when you look at the fact that 50% of the population, roughly, identify as women, you know, I think I think it's a conversation that everybody should be engaged in. Absolutely. Right. You are. Um, Tell us more about the, the focus of these latest episodes. Well, on episode one, we actually started with popular culture, and that was prompted by the Barbie movie. Hi, Barbie. 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 It was, of course, huge last summer. It started a lot of really interesting conversations. And uh, a lot of people were asking, like, is this a moment that will change our culture? So we thought, hey, what are some moments in popular culture that maybe have started some really serious conversations or even shifted our culture. So we talked about Barbie and we talked about Nine to Five, the Dolly Parton movie. We talked about Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was written by a woman and definitely part of a cultural shift when you think about the growth of abolitionism. We talked about Nina Simone. I mean, there are just some really great things to talk about that that really were pivotal in our nation's history. On the second episode, we look at the four different waves of feminism. I think that I'm more of a feminist. I don't believe in um, 
and uh, you know there are specific roles in society that only males can do versus females I think everyone should be able to have that autonomy to decide what they want to do um, I'm gonna let you take that one here <laughs> I would say yes yeah. I, I would say yes yes I do not identify as a feminist. I don't know if I like the word feminist, but uh, yeah. I believe that women can do anything that men can. So if that makes me a feminist, then I guess I am. If, if I'm being completely honest, I don't like think about it that often. Um, but yeah, I'd say so. I feel like I would consider myself a feminist. Um, I also did grow up under Islam, so I do see a different perspective. Sure. Why not? Why wouldn't I? And I think a lot of us have kind of a basic understanding of feminism, but the history, the history of the feminist movements through time is really fascinating. And then we culminate that episode with a conversation with three different women who are in different generations, but in the same family and thinking about how their lives were changed because of the, the rights and opportunities that they had when they came of age. On episode three, we talk about reproductive responsibilities and access to care. We start with periods. We go through menopause and have some really, really interesting conversations. In the fourth episode, it's all about work. Working nine to five. What a way to make a living. Barely getting by. It's all taking and no giving. They just use your mind. women's labor at home and women's labor in the work workplace. And then we culminate, the fifth episode is really just the voices of different women from around the state of Iowa, women of different ages, different backgrounds, different identities, different experiences. And we ask them all to tell us what it means to them to be a woman. And we can hear just a tidbit of some of their voices right now. Okay. Being a woman to me means understanding that I stand on the shoulders of all the women who came before me. I am a teacher and a scientist. I am a transgender woman. And I identify as a seasoned woman, a grandmother, motorcycle mama. But I'm also an eight-year cancer survivor. And... All of the episodes are my favorite episodes, Ben, <laughs> but that <laughs> I just I just loved, loved hearing all of these women talk about what it means to them to be a woman. And it, there are some pretty profound ideas, some thoughts that really resonate, some thoughts that made me think a little bit differently about myself. So it's it's a really good series. <laughs> you should definitely give okay. it a listen. But oh. that, that show, if you don't listen to any other, maybe do listen to that one. All right. Fascinating and so uh, timely. Uh, Charity Nebby's uh, host of Unsettled. Uh, the new season is out. Uh, uh, Charity, uh, how can uh, listeners enjoy Unsettled? Make sure they don't miss an episode. Well, you can go to IPR.org slash Unsettled and find all of the information, all of the episodes there or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want an easy way to search for it, type in Unsettled Iowa and it will pop right up. Unsettled Iowa. Look for those words and subscribe. Charity Nebby, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben.
Signs, the five-man electrical band, taking us back to 1971, taking me back to my childhood growing up in Cedar Falls, singing along to that one. Well, a different sort of sign story in the news. We've all seen them, the electronic highway messages that bring some levity during our travels in the state. Messages such as, get your head out of your apps, drive safely. These amusing signs uh, will be phased out by 2026 under new federal laws. Lynn Taw of Axios Des Moines joins us now. Lynn, say it ain't so. <laughs> <laughs> I know. We all love them so much, don't we? <laughs> well, I suppose there are those who, who don't get a, a chuckle out of them, but I, I certainly do. What's going on? Yeah, so right now, so the, the U.S. Federal Highway Administration um, has released some new guidelines regarding these uh, electronic signs that we've kind of become known and loved over the last few years. And their recommendation is that, you know, there needs to be some more caution with these signs, that some of them that are intended to be humorous or have pop culture references uh, could possibly be misunderstood by drivers. So they're asking states to kind of re-examine and take a look and try to be more clear, simple, and direct with their signs. Mm -hmm. So the U.S. Federal Highway Administration is behind these possible changes, or these changes. They're they're in a new manual, right? What does the new manual say about what should and shouldn't be on these signs? What is the guidance? Yeah, so the federal government is saying, you know, they just really want it to be direct and brief, you know, so stuff like get your head out of your apps or, um, you know, some of the jokes that, that we've enjoyed about like the field of dreams and some of our Iowa specific signs. Um, their recommendation is that really, you know, these need to be clear. Uh, highway signs need to be something that's uh, easy for drivers to understand, that they know what's going on. Um, I, I'd say right now, though, you know, we're kind of waiting and seeing, especially in the state of Iowa, because it, is it a mandate? Is it more of a recommendation? Is it kind of a guideline? Mm. The state right now is saying that they're just reviewing it at the moment. So right now, it, you know, it's not entirely going away or anything like that. But it's keeping in mind, you know, what, what's the intention of these signs? Yeah, and the Iowa DOT has put some effort into this. And I understand it seems like they're kind of proud of it and, and for uh, amusing us on our travels. And, and they have uh, reasons for this messaging, don't they? Yeah, you know, the, the Iowa DOT, I mean, for, you know, several years now, I mean, they've had their own staff who are the ones that are, you know, coming up and thinking of these signs. I even think of, you know, they had a contest once where one of my friends had made up a sign as well and was able to, you know, see it up in lights and was so proud of it later. But really the intention for them for these signs is not, you know, just to try to get someone to laugh, but the intention is really to get people to pay attention to the signs, to think about the messaging behind them. Because even though they're funny, you know, oftentimes they do, uh, you know, recommend something. They recommend focusing on the road, clipping in your seatbelt, uh, you know, things that we all need a reminder and maybe forget about. But when there's something funny, uh, we pay a little bit more attention to it. Okay. Well, uh, we'll see how this turns out with the signs along our highways and what they'll contain in the future. Lynn Tom of Axios Des Moines. Thank you so much, Lynn. Yeah, thanks for having me.
And we've just about come to the end of this News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News on this 26th day of January. Let's groove into the weekend. Mark Simmett, IPR Studio One host, is here to do that very thing. Hi, Mark. Hey, how you doing, Ben? I'm doing well. What do you have for us? Well, uh, first up, I have a band out of New Orleans. They've been around for a few years now, but I still think of them as an up-and-coming band. They are called Hooray for the Riff Raff, and they're led by Alindra Selgara. Uh, The new album they have is coming out in February, and here's a track from this latest release by Hooray for the Riff Raff. It's called Alibi. Towards East River Park You told me your 